Okay, wait, wait, just a second. I got to plug this. Yow! It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 157 for August 23rd, 2009. Thanks to the Cash for Clunkers program, I bought a new car a few weeks ago. I'd been planning to buy a used car sometime this year, had some money set aside for the down payment. The current vehicle had been paid off for more than a decade. It would have fetched maybe $1,500 if I had sold it on my own, and if I had found someone gullible enough to pay $1,500 for a vehicle that was seriously in need of some expensive work. So the cars program essentially doubled my down payment and I was able to set up an affordable four-year payment plan that I hope to pay off within two years. So what's the technology angle here, you might ask? A reasonable question, that. Well, the new car has a USB port. There's some technology. It allows me to plug in an iPod, but it also allows me to plug in a thumb drive. And I just happened to have three two-gigabyte thumb drives sitting on my desk. But that's just the start of what you can do if you have some available thumb drives lying around. Having a thumb drive as a source of music would seem to be yet another nail in commercial radio's coffin. I listen to NPR on the way to the office in the morning, usually 5.30 to 6, and sometimes to NPR's news and fresh air on the way home from 3 to 3.30. On Fridays, my station of choice, which happens to be WCBE, covers the news with what I consider to be a lame movie review program. And on other days, the news is sometimes just omitted because it's covered by Poetry Corner. That's because whoever did the back timing messed up. And instead of omitting Poetry Corner, they omit the news. So I'm closer to giving up on NPR in the afternoon and just listening to music on the way home. Thumb drives are faster than CD drives. Uh, The car is one of those, too. And I can easily replace the selections on the thumb drive, which is something I can't really do with a CD, but that's really not very important because CDs cost about 30 cents. In other words, I wouldn't go out and buy a thumb drive just to use it for music in a USB-equipped car. But if I had some extra thumb drives lying around, I would use them. If you want to do this, you'll probably need to stick to MP3 format files or WMA format files. Unfortunately, most of my music is in Apple's M4A format, and the audiobooks I have are in M4B format. Neither of those will work from a CD or a thumb drive in my little Honda Fit. I thought I was being smart by using Apple's format. It turns out not to have been exactly the case. By the way, you don't have to use those MP3s on your thumb drive in the car. Take the drive to the office and you can play the files with Windows Media Player if it's installed on your computer. Most office IT managers frown on users trying to play streaming media via the office's internet connection. tends to bog down connection speeds. But you might be okay if you bring in music on a thumb drive. Before you try this, though, make sure that management doesn't have any policies that forbid the use of thumb drives on company hardware. 
my company happens to have a policy like that. And it is increasingly becoming the norm for security, privacy, and antivirus reasons. Of course, if you own your own business, well, you can do what you want. But thumb drives are good for a lot more than that. The remaining 4-gigabyte drive that I carry in my pocket contains every password I've defined for every system that I use. At least 100 passwords, probably far more. There is no danger in carrying these passwords around on a thumb drive because the application that they're stored in, which is called KeePass, has its own password, and all of the other passwords are therefore encrypted in a way that would take even the CIA a few weeks to unravel. In other words, I could hand the thumb drive to somebody and not worry about the security of passwords stored on it. And you can bet the password I use to lock KeePass is a strong one. You can also bet it's one that's easy for me to remember, one that I'm not likely to forget in a moment of being brain dead. Speaking of security, you might, but I wouldn't, protect your PC with a thumb drive loaded with a program called Predator. This is an application that allows the thumb drive to lock your PC. Unless the thumb drive is plugged into the PC's USB connector, you can't use the PC. Remove the thumb drive and your PC is inaccessible. If you lose the thumb drive, you might be in trouble. Or, then again, maybe not. It's possible to boot the computer in safe mode, then eliminate the protections. Well, if you can do that, this is really more of an illusion of security than real security. Anybody who knows the trick could unlock the computer by booting to safe mode and removing the security. You can bet that if you're playing a game that causes you to think of using a device like this, someone on the other side probably knows the trick. On the other hand, if you use your thumb drive to carry around important documents, you should consider encrypting it. TrueCrypt is probably the best choice for this. Encryption is automatic, occurs in real time, and is essentially transparent. On-the-fly, real-time encryption means the data is automatically encrypted and decrypted before it is loaded or saved without any user intervention. No data that is stored on an encrypted volume can be read without the correct password or key file, and the application encrypts the entire thumb drive, including file names, folder names, and the contents of every file, free space, and metadata. If it's on the drive, it's encrypted. KeePass, the password keeper that I mentioned earlier, is a Windows application. It can run from a thumb drive without any installation. But you might want to take some applications with you that don't have this ability when you go on a business trip. Take a look at portable apps. Well, I'll tell you more about it in a few weeks, but briefly, it's a free and open source application that lets you take some of the most common applications with you. The PortableApps.com suite is a collection of portable apps, including a web browser, an email client, an office suite with a calendar, instant messaging, antivirus, an audio player, password manager, PDF reader, and more. Install the application to a thumb drive, and you'll have just about everything you need. Maybe not the programs you use most of the time, but at least something you can use to do just about anything you'd need to do. The suite includes Mozilla Firefox, Portable Edition, Mozilla Thunderbird, Portable Edition, Mozilla Sunbird, Portable Edition, the Clamwin Portable Antivirus Application, Pigeon Portable for Instant Messaging, the PDF Reader, Sumatra PDF Portable, KeePass Password Safe, Cool Player Plus, and OpenOffice for Portable Standard Office Tasks. 
You'll need 150 to 350 megabytes of space on your thumb drive to install portable apps, but these days that's not really very much. And by the way, everything in the suite will also run under Wine if your computer runs Linux, Unix, BSD, or the Mac OS X. Yes, you probably do want to download this if you ever travel and would like to just leave your laptop at home for a change. Apple says it has seen some isolated incidents. Reports from Europe suggest that when iPhones burst into flame, Apple is quick to reach a settlement with the victim in a way that forces the victim to remain silent. The Apple iPhone 3GS apparently has an overheating problem, but the devices may also catch your pants, your purse, or your jacket on fire. Reuters says that Apple is investigating media reports that some of the company's iPhones have exploded in Europe. Yes, exploded. Macworld says that Apple is still collecting information about the incidents. The magazine says a French teenager claimed that his girlfriend's iPhone made a hissing sound moments before its glass touchscreen shattered. Another report came from the UK where a man said that his daughter's iPhone hissed and then exploded. From the Netherlands, a report that an iPhone caused a fire that burned a vehicle's seat. So a suggestion here, if your iPhone starts hissing at you, you might want to step back. Slashgear offers an image that it says shows the results of that car fire. Apple, apparently not wanting to alarm iPhone buyers, has been busy trying to settle claims in a way that muzzles those who have seen their iPhones explode. According to Slashgear, Apple did offer the Liverpool owner a 162-pound refund. That's about $271. But the agreement the user was forced to sign said that the user will keep the terms and existence of the settlement agreement completely confidential. And what if the aggrieved party blabs? Well, then Apple says it would be justified in seeking injunctive relief, damages, and legal costs against the defaulting person or parties. What a nice company Apple is. By the way, Slashgear says the iPhone owner did not accept Apple's terms. You know, sometimes customer support works just exactly the way it should. Several years ago, I criticized Wide Open West, the Internet service provider, on WTVN's Technology Corner. I said that the customer support was poor. In an astonishingly short-sighted move, the advertising manager for Wide Open West pulled its ads from WTVN. The ad manager has probably moved on to some other company by now where she's making equally inept decisions. But Wide Open West's support has improved astonishingly over the intervening years. One thing that support personnel understand, and ad managers generally don't, is that when a customer takes time out to complain, it's a gift. Listen, you'll find out what's wrong. Respond, and you'll provide better service. So here's an example. Mid-August, late Friday afternoon, I suddenly lost all connectivity. The cable modem's cable light was still on, so that suggested I still had a connection to WOW. The problem appeared not to be local, but I tried the usual steps anyway. These involve rebooting the cable modem, rebooting the router, rebooting the computer. No change. Then I rebooted the cable modem and connected the PC directly to the modem and eliminated the router. No change. I called WOW and waited on hold for about five minutes. The automated attendant said I should expect to wait a five to ten minutes, so it was exactly right. Then a technician named Amy answered, and this is previously where things would have gone bad. 
I said to Amy, Hi, Amy. I'm having a connection problem. I've already rebooted the cable modem and the router. I'm seeing a green light on the cable modem, but I can't ping anything. I've also rebooted the cable modem and connected the PC directly to the cable modem, and there's no change. Amy waited a moment or two, probably checking her computer, and said, Are you by chance in the Columbus area? I said that I was. We're having a problem in the Columbus area, and technicians are working on it now. I said, Okay, thanks. Just wanted to confirm that the problem was on your end, not mine. I then said I'd stop looking for the problem here. The entire call took less than a minute. Amy was both forthcoming and honest. I obtained the information I needed, and a few minutes later, full connectivity was restored. This is not to say that Wide Open West is perfect. It's not. The connection drops, as I've described, several times a week, but it's usually restored within about 15 seconds. It is refreshing to get honest answers from a service provider. Last week's podcast was number 156. Now, assuming 52 programs per year, that means that this week's podcast is the beginning of year four, more or less. In the last three years, I've taken a few weeks off for holidays, so year four probably started, you know, somewhere around podcast 150. I continue to be surprised and gratified by the acceptance of the non-broadcast version of what used to be Technology Corner. Sometimes it's still a bit difficult to attract the attention of the PR departments of some companies or that of PR agencies who are stuck in the 1990s. Apparently, they haven't noticed that radio listenership continues to dwindle and that podcast listenership continues to increase. They also sometimes just look at raw numbers. Is it better to have 25,000 broadcast listeners or 500 podcast listeners? Well, I really don't know, but I do know this. Website traffic has actually increased over the past three years. The amount of mail from listeners has remained about the same. My theory is that most people have the radio on primarily to provide a baseline of chatter, background noise in effect. Some people do listen actively, but they have little choice about what they listen to. If you stay with one station, you get whatever the station pushes your way. If you move from one station to another, you still get only what the station you're listening to at the moment is pushing your way. With podcasts, the listener has to take an active part in the communication. The listener must actively obtain the audio and make a conscious decision to listen to it. And that's why I'm so gratified that you've made the decision to listen or to read the website. So thanks for being there, and I hope to continue to provide useful information for the next year and, for that matter, for a lot more years to come. Speaking of useful information, and if you're in the Ohio area, here's something you may want to know about. From genealogy to Linux, from identity theft to a three-operating system Mac with an identity crisis, from Windows 7 to hard disk destruction. Those are just some of the topics at next weekend's Midwest Regional Association of Personal Computer User Groups Conference in Newark. Boy, is that a long name. Online registration is now closed, but you can still register on-site starting on Friday, August 28th, about 4 p.m. The programs are at the Cherry Valley Lodge. They're scheduled to run on Saturday and Sunday. If you'd like more information, visit the group's website. You'll find a link to that website on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com, or take a look at the Cherry Valley Lodge website. There's a link to that website from the APCUG website. 
The lodge is at the west edge of Newark, just off Route 16. How much email is spam? Would you believe 100%? How about 97%? Depending on who's doing the defining, it could be as low as 80% or maybe as high as 97%. In 2004, Bill Gates rather mistakenly said there would be no more spam by 2006. That seems to have been just a little optimistic. In the past month, I have spent far more time trying to eliminate spam and scareware than I've spent with any other task. Scareware? New term. Fraudsters put forth absurd claims. Death squads for seniors, plans for the Fed to eliminate the dollar, claims that Barack Obama cannot be president, things like that, in hopes that gullible recipients will click the provided link, which often leads to a website that will attempt to infect your computer with various types of malware. Must you prove your identity to your bank? No. Did the United Parcel Service of America fail to deliver your package? No. Should you accept a pop-up offer to scan your computer because it's already infected with spyware? No, but if you do, it will be. Gullibility seems to be at an all-time high. Coming soon, Gwitter. Google is reported to be planning to acquire Twitter. Twitter is, of course, the microblogging service that's popular with the older crowd. Twitter's tweets can be no more than 140 characters long, but the service is caught on with corporations and with people aged 35 and above. For younger users, not so much. If Google has money to burn, the founders of Twitter could discover that they may never have to work another day in their lives. Despite the current recession, Twitter is in a strong position to sell. This isn't exactly virgin territory for one of Twitter's owners. Evan Williams invented Blogger and then sold that company to Google. Aren't you supposed to be able to do this just once in your lifetime? Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.